Everybody doing okay? Good. Sounds like you are. Good. If y'all can, it's good to see everybody tonight. You can take out your Bibles and go ahead and turn to Exodus chapter. Where we where do we where do we quit? Hey, good. That was a test. I knew. I knew exactly where it was. Good. Good to be back together. Just a, a reminder or two. One, um, maybe just one. Uh, we will be having our night of worship this Sunday night. So we want you to come out and join us and be a part of that. This this time it will be down at our rec fields, down at the pavilion. And I am, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, I think it's at six o'clock, isn't it? Huh? Y'all don't know? This is not a test. I really don't know. Six, six o'clock? Now we got them. Good. Six o'clock. Six o'clock down there. Come out, bring your chair. And I think they're having ice cream and stuff like that, which is a bribe. But but come on out and be a part of that this Sunday night at six. Have our regular Sunday morning schedule looking at Acts chapter three, the second half there of Acts chapter three. Um, and with that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and begin. How about that? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to be together again tonight. We are glad uh, that we can come into your house and be with your people. And so, Father, as we gather around your word, we want, to, uh, we want tonight to acknowledge that we are completely dependent upon you. And just as we look to your word in these passages, as you make yourself known, we're thankful, Father, that you have ultimately and finally fully revealed yourself in your son, Jesus Christ. And so tonight, God, may we honor him as we look to your word and for your glory in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right. We're going to keep going where we left off here. We stopped with the third plague. We're going to get my mouth right tonight, make sure I don't say plague. And uh, and what have you? But we start we start with the third uh, we stop with the third plague, and we're going to pick up tonight with the fourth. This section of the book of Exodus is rather familiar. I mean, I think when you are even uh, young, if you've grown up in the church at all, you you probably know about this section. You put the ten plagues right there beside the ten commandments, and you put them on the flannel graph, and you learn about them when you're growing up. And especially sing songs about it. Y'all know the songs, right? Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Y'all know that one? Y'all remember that one? Oh, no, let my people go. Y'all don't remember that one? Okay, well, I'll get Kevin to come in here and lead us in that here. Soon. He's practicing. But uh, we, we sing about these, so somewhat familiar. But what we want to remember as we look to this section is that the, the key part of this section is that the Lord God of the universe is making himself known. He's making himself known. Up until this point in the scriptures, he has already made himself known. He made himself known first to Abraham as he appeared to him in the Ur of the Chaldeans. And I'm going back to Abraham. Obviously, he made himself known before then with Adam and Eve. But this, this life of Israel, he's made himself known first with Abraham and then with, with Isaac and then with Jacob. And if you remember, those are the three patriarchs that they'll continue to bring up because it was to those three patriarchs the promises were given. And those promises had been given and they will be kept. And so when he reveals himself, he says, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Why does he say that? Because he wants to connect with them? Not necessarily. Of course, he does. They connect with him. He says that because it's to those three that he gave his promises. 
And he is here to keep those promises is what he's doing. And so now having uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, remember Jacob had his 12 sons and they, they uh, had children, of course, and they had to go to Egypt to, uh, to get out of the, the famine. And Joseph, y'all remember Genesis, right? Joseph worked that deal. And so now 400 years later, having been put in Egypt, they're in slavery to a Pharaoh who did not know the Lord. And so that set us off on this whole section. When Pharaoh says, and he puts, he puts him and he says, this Pharaoh did not know the Lord. Now he is going to make himself known. And God is making himself known, not just to his people at this point, but to the world. And we're going to see that even tonight. We'll see that in these passages. And so through this process, God is making himself known by revealing himself first to Moses. Uh, one unlikely chosen out in the earth, out in the uh, the wilderness, introduces himself first to Moses, and then he calls Moses to go and talk to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let his people go. He's Moses is reunited with his brother, and they go to Pharaoh. They go to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, "No, I'm not going to do it." And remember, the first thing Moses asked for was not for them to be released from Egypt. He just simply said, can, I, can we go out into the wilderness and sacrifice unto the Lord? And so Pharaoh says, no, I'm not doing that. Uh, the people get disheartened thinking it was time for they were, they were going to be able to be free, but they clearly weren't. Pharaoh responds by forcing more oppression upon the people, making bricks without straw, but keeping the same demands. It only gets worse. And now he goes to Pharaoh a second time, and Pharaoh says, no, no, we're not going to let them go. And so now the Lord says, it's time to make myself known. And if you remember last week, that's exactly what we started to see. God makes himself known to Pharaoh, and in the process of making himself known, he is dismantling the whole system and structure of Egypt what they depended on, what they trusted in, what they looked to, the God's little G of Egypt, the Lord God, big G, is going to show them who is ultimately in control. And so these plagues that we have here are simply that. They are responses. They are demonstrations. We got to remember that they're not chosen randomly. The Lord didn't just say, I'm going to choose gnats this time, or I'm going to choose turning the river to, to blood. He's showing his power over against everything Egypt trusted in, over against everything they counted on. And, and, and the gods of Egypt were recognized by their power over nature. Remember, we talked about the frogs where, where the fertility god, you know, that was a frog. We talked about the Nile, one that gives, gives life. We'll talk even, you see later, about the, uh, about the sun and how he blackens that out. You see, these gods uh, of, of, uh, of Egypt were ones that were over nature. So they prayed uh, to give us sunshine or give us rain or give they pray to the God of those things. And so you start to see how God through these plagues is going to demonstrate that he's actually in charge of nature. And so we looked and we saw uh, the first plague turning the Nile into blood uh, the, and not just the Nile, but all of the water of Egypt, the second plague, the frogs, and then the third plague, the plague, the gnats. Now, remember, as we talked, these plagues come in three sets of three. There'll be the tenth one, I know, and that one will be the capstone, if you will. But the plagues come in three sets of three, and they follow a pattern. In the first of those set, in the set, he, the Moses and Aaron goes and finds Pharaoh down by the water in the morning and he talks to him and says, here's what we're going to do. And he gives the opportunity and Pharaoh says no and the plague comes and Pharaoh has the opportunity again to respond and his heart is hardened, right? The second one, he goes into Pharaoh's house and they go to his house and he says, here's what we're going to do. And then the third one, it just doesn't. No warning, no statement, it just happens. And so you see now we're going back to that same pattern. And remember, I, I talked about this a little bit last week. It's helpful in this way when you're dealing with oral cultures, right? This wasn't written down. This was told. These were stories passed down even to the Israelite people. There would be easy ways to remember these things as you think about it. And so we start with that fourth plague, flies. 
as if gnats weren't bad enough. Now we go with round two, and it begins with flies. And then the Lord says, verse 20 of chapter 8, to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth, that you may know, remember that. Thus I'll put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign shall happen. And the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his servants' houses throughout all the land of Egypt. The land was ruined by swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, it would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to the Lord God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abomin abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to the Lord our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I'll let you go sacrifice to the Lord your God in the wilderness. Only you must, go, must not go very far. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I'm going out from you, and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, and the Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time and did not let the people go. As we begin this, we remember last week, there's a, a, also a pattern within each one of these. There's a command by God to Moses and Aaron. Here's what you are to do. And you see the obedience is followed by Moses and Aaron. They do exactly what God says for them to do. They go, in this case, they go into Pharaoh and say, here's what's going to happen. That obedience comes. And then God's power is displayed. For he says, tomorrow the sign shall happen, and the Lord did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and to his servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. It puts us in a, a quandary here because as I look through these, you start thinking, which one of these plagues would I choose? You know what I'm saying? Like if, if I could choose any one of these, all right, so the Lord said, I got nine of them. And, and, and you get to choose which one you want me to do right now. Does that make sense? Y'all get what I'm saying? Which one would you choose? And before you jump out and say flies, no, you wouldn't. Those things are nasty. They'll ruin a meal. You know what I'm saying? You see a fly land on your watermelon, you don't want to eat it anymore. You, talk, you, know, you know what I was told when I was younger? Everywhere a fly lands, it pees. Y'all ever heard? Y'all remember that? That's what my grandma told me. And, they spent, and, and my grandma was a fly warrior because she had a fly swatter in every room. And, and, and she, she would go after them, and they didn't have a chance in her house. And if one was buzzing, cooking stopped, cleaning stopped. You know what I mean? You can't clean if there's a fly swarming around peeing everywhere. <laughs> Just going undoing what you're doing. And so when you're looking at these, there's not one of these I would wish on anybody, right? You want gnats? You want, what, what, what else we got here? Frogs? Remember that? There was frogs everywhere. This one says that the flies were in such a place you could not walk without stepping on them. Without stepping on the fly. That is nasty. Y'all know what flies like? Trash. And so ultimately what God is saying here again is that Pharaoh, you have zero control. And, and, and the things that you want to have happen, they can't happen. And notice there's a few new things in this one. We see the power of God on display. We see all of those things. We see that, that list. But notice there's a few new things. First, in this, this one, 
you don't have the counterfeit show up again. Remember, they tried in the previous one, in the third one, and they could not pull it off. They couldn't do it. Now they give up. They can't keep up with the power of God. And remember, those counterfeits, as we talked about, when they look at the, the ones who could practice the dark arts, as it says, all they can possibly do is mimic what God can do, right? I mean, what sense does it make? God turns the water into blood, and they say, hey, we can do the same thing. Well, why don't you turn it back into water? That would be a better thing to do to demonstrate your power. But all you can do is mimic it. And that displays what I say is Satan's power. His power is only to mimic the power of God. And he can't undo what is wrong. He only creates more wrong. And what do you remember about what it says in Revelation? I love, I love that passage in Revelation 20. One where it says he's making everything that was wrong right again. You see what I'm saying? Jesus, God the Father, has the power to make what was wrong right. Satan has only the power to make what was wrong wronger. And that's ultimately what we see here. And finally, ultimately, his power, his power fails when it compares to the power of God. And so you see, there's no more counterfeits. You also see the first time in this second round here is a distinction between God's people and the Egyptians. Here God says, what, look at what he says. Uh, but on verse 22, but on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen. Remember the land of Goshen is where the people of God dwelt in Egypt. It was the nice land, the green land down on the Nile that Joseph had set aside for them. That was where they had built their, their, their place. And so he says, I'm going to set aside the land of Goshen where my people dwell so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. In other words, he's talking, remember who, who he's talking to. The says the Lord, tell this to Pharaoh. He's saying this to Pharaoh because he's letting Pharaoh know those are my people. They are my people and I'm going to take particular care of them. This, this idea of my people is interesting in this passage because these people were slaves to Pharaoh. Pharaoh believed he owned them, right? Does that make sense to everybody? Pharaoh believed they were his. They were slaves to Pharaoh. And God is going to say over 10 times in these passages, let my people go. They're my people. And what are they called to do? They're called to serve me, the Lord says, by worshiping and honoring. And what do we see set up against each other throughout this whole passage? We see God doing what he said he would do, equipping his people with everything they need. And we see Pharaoh lying over and over again and taking away their needs like straw to make bricks, pulling them back, not equipping. So you have a wicked master versus a glorious, holy master, a good master. You have these two juxtaposed, and you see that here again. Because what happens? Pharaoh says, all right, all right. You got flies everywhere. Somehow the flies started tipping Pharaoh a little bit, you know? And, and he, you got flies everywhere, so Pharaoh says, all right, y'all can, can sacrifice in, in Egypt. I'll let you do it. I'll let you sacrifice to your God in Egypt. And Pharaoh's probably saying this as he's barely opening his mouth because if he does, flies go into it. Y'all know what I'm talking about? I mean, just get the image. It's in Pharaoh. It says it particularly. It's in Pharaoh's house. You couldn't get into Pharaoh. You want an appointment to see Pharaoh? It wasn't going to happen. You can't just walk up into Pharaoh's house. His house is protected. It's Pharaoh's house. It's the most glorious of all of them, but not from the flies. Flies were up in Pharaoh's house. So Pharaoh's probably even talking through his mouth or something like this. You know what I'm saying? Okay, okay, okay. You can, you can go as if Pharaoh has the power. Just notice, notice that. At first we think maybe Pharaoh's starting to crack, but nothing's changed in Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh believes that he's going to give permission for God's people to go and sacrifice he believes he has that authority. He believes he has that idea. But only God is in charge of his people. 
And so when Pharaoh says, okay, they can sacrifice in the land, Moses calls him out on it. If we do that, then the Egyptians are going to stone us because it's illegal for us to sacrifice in this land. It's illegal. That's what you've told them to do before. So that's why we needed to go out into the wilderness, which gets us an explanation of why can we go a three days journey away? We don't want the Egyptians. We don't want to offend. And so as to offend, cause some harm against us because of some law that you have. And so he says, you can do it in land. And so Pharaoh, uh, no, we can't do that. You'll stone us. Okay, okay, okay. So instead of that, you can, you can go into the wilderness, but don't go too far. Pharaoh, again, is acting like he's in charge. Now, this guy's pretty strong. When it says he had a hard heart, remember the words that was used for hard heart, one that was inclined away from something, one that becomes strong against something, one that would become stubborn. You see, there's a progression of the hardness of this heart that you see, stubborn that would do it, or one that would simply become rock solid against it, right? petrified, if you would, against something. And so you see this progression as these different, again, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, different words are being used throughout this passage on what it means to harden the heart. They all, in the Hebrew, they're different words. For us, it's the same phrase. And so we miss that sometimes. And so what's happening is his heart in these passages is getting harder and harder and harder and harder. And, and, and it takes a lot, right? Because he just had... The whole water system in Egypt turned to blood. And then he had gnats. He had gnats all over the place. And now, ultimately, he's coming, frogs, right? He's coming from frogs. Now he's going to flies. Frogs, gnats, flies. I would have loved if the Lord would have put the flies out there and left the frogs and see how the battle went. You know what I'm saying? But not only that, when he says he wants to show how he is God because he separated out his people, think of that scene. You got flies in Pharaoh's house, but not a single fly in the land where his people are dwelling. Not a single one. God is demonstrating his power. But in the same time he's demonstrating his power, he's demonstrating his, his uh, unique power for his unique people. He's demonstrating his unique power for them. He's displaying his love. We'll come back to that even. And so here, not only that, that's the new thing. And the other new thing is the fact that Pharaoh starts to concede. But as soon as Pharaoh concedes, what happens? Moses says, I'm going out from you and I will plead with the Lord that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again. Moses says, okay, I'll go. And Moses becomes the intercessor, a role he will play throughout Exodus and, and, and Leviticus and Numbers and even in Deuteronomy, right up to the point that he will go in, that the people will go into the promised land and Moses dies in the wilderness. He's an intercessor on behalf of the people. He goes and he pleads to God on their behalf. So this time he pleads to God on Pharaoh's behalf. And what does God do? He takes him away. Pharaoh said, I'll let y'all go into the wilderness to sacrifice. Just take the flies out of here. Okay, I'll do it. Goes, look, God, will you do it? And just as God always does, he keeps his word. He does exactly what he says. And just as Pharaoh always does, he doesn't, right? You see, again, the difference. Pharaoh starts to... Uh, say what he thinks he needs to say to get out of the situation at the moment. The Lord did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, from his people. Not one remained. Again, a demonstration of power of God that not even a single fly remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time and did not let the people go. Did not let the people go. Second one then, the fifth plague, second one in this series. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. 
For if you refuse to let my people go and still hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will fall with a very severe plague upon your livestock that are in the field, the horses, the donkeys, the camels, the herds, the flocks. But the Lord will make a distinction between the the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing of all that belongs to the people of Israel shall die. And the Lord set a time saying, tomorrow the Lord will do this thing in the land. And the next day the Lord did this thing. All the livestock of of the Egyptians died, but not one of the livestock of the people of Israel died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. Again, the Lord comes. This time he appears to Pharaoh, and Moses goes to Pharaoh in his house, just like in that second one. He goes there. He goes into Pharaoh's place, and he tells him, here's what's going to happen. Every bit of your livestock would die, just like the, just like the water was life for Egypt. The livestock was the work of Egypt, right? It was what they used to carry out all of their work. All of their machinery was in livestock, if you will. And so ultimately this was where, uh, this was where their capital wealth was found. This was where their investments were. A family that had money would have a lot of livestock. We've seen that throughout. This is where they would put their money into and demonstrate their, their situation as in their position and rank in society by how much livestock they would have. And so ultimately the Lord comes And for the first time in the fifth plague, we find death enters in. Not of people this time, but death of the livestock. The Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt. For the second one, you also see how the Lord divides out his people. How he divides out his people from the Egyptian people. He does this and Pharaoh sent. Notice what happens here in verse 7. Pharaoh sent And behold, not one of the livestock of Israel was dead. So Pharaoh wanted to check this out again. Now, he didn't have flies last time, so all of his livestock was dead. All of his people's livestock was dead. Y'all go and check in Goshen and see if their livestock is dead. And when he comes back and checks, not one. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. The sixth plague, again, unannounced. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust over the land of Egypt and become boils. How y'all say that word? Y'all do boils? Y'all say oil or oil? Oil? I say oil. I mean, that's, that's how you're supposed to say it, right? We're in South Carolina. I don't, I'm not going to ask you how you say pecan. I'll get offended. Tell where you're from. Oil. They had boils. But I said boils the first time, didn't I? All right. I'm just going to let it come out how it's going to come out. Kim threw it in the air took the soot from the kiln, stood before Pharaoh. Moses threw it in the air, and it became bulls breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians, they show up again. The magicians could not stand before Moses because of the bulls, for the bulls came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. Now, for the first time here, pain enters into the body of the people. The Lord attacks their own very flesh. And in attacking their flesh, these bulls enter in and, and, and come all over their body. And, and, and there, I like, I say I like, this is just sad for them. But it's interesting, isn't it, how the magicians show up this time. Almost of this, maybe they were in the background for the, for the, uh, for the flies. Maybe they were in the background for the livestock. But this time, Moses brings them up and said, remember those magicians that, that kind of showed up and tried to show how powerful they were? This time, they couldn't even stand before us. They had no power over us. They had nothing they could offer. They could not protect themselves from what God was doing. So the bulls come all over everybody. I don't know if y'all ever have ever had a, a bull. 
I don't know if I've ever had a boil either. I don't even know what that, I don't know what that necessarily is. I, I do know that I spent six days in the hospital because of an infection in my leg one time. You don't hear that story? Okay, good. <laughs> so I'm hiking through the mountains in South Asia, right? We get to a, 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 we're sharing the gospel village to village. We get to a village at night. I hadn't bathed in a while. And so flies were starting to come on me. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Previous plague. And I'm sitting there thinking I need to do this. So it's dark. You have to go. You use a bucket. You do all those things. I pour the water over my head with the bucket. And I'm trying to just at least wash my hair. And, and, and I got clothes on and everything. I'm just doing what I can. You know what I'm saying? And so when I do it, it gets slippery out there and I slip and I cut my foot. I cut my foot. And I didn't think nothing of it. I'm tough. You know what I'm saying? I mean, what you, what you think? You just come back, your foot's bleeding. I cut my foot on both sides, actually. And if I take, normally I don't wear socks, Miss Barbara, but tonight I got socks on. She always brings that up. The scars are still there. And we, we come out in the mountains. My foot's hurting a little bit. I got it wrapped up. We Two more days there. We do a lot of walking. Come out, and I'm headed back home. When I'm headed back home, something's not right. And in the something's not right, I start looking, and these little sores are breaking out on my lower half of my leg. And my leg's swelling up. Well, it's time to go home. And the last thing I want to do is end up in the hospital in some little country town in India, if you know what I mean. And so I'm sitting there pumping the ibuprofen. My, uh, my, my fever is rising. I'm putting what I can. I put my long pants on. I get on the plane. I don't say a word. It's an 18-hour flight. It's about 45 hours of travel to get back. When I get back home, we drive straight to a doctor who was in our church's house, and I pull my sock off. And when I did, my leg was about this big around. Y'all see how that big is? Now, I'm a strong, muscular man, but that's about triple the size. And these sores are all over it, and it's not looking good. I, I go to the hospital. She says, go home, take a shower. If, if your fever is too high after the shower then you need to go to the hospital. Go to the hospital, get out in the shower, fall directly asleep, tired. Wake up about two hours later, and my fever's at 105. That's not good. Y'all, judging by y'all, y'all know that. I go straight to the hospital, and the doctor looks at me and says, well, this could go either way. I said, which two directions are you talking about, Doc? <laughs> he didn't have to explain it, but my leg had gone septic a little bit. So six days of antibiotics in the hospital. I'd never been in the hospital before. It was not actually not that bad. Um, considered, I, I take that back, it was awful. Because <laughs> they wake you up every three hours and all this other kind of stuff. Six days in the hospital, antibiotics, until my legs finally started healing. Then I was on crutches for about four weeks. Uh, long story short, these sores were boils that had become infected with a uh, bacteria, right? And there was just four of them on my leg, and it caused my whole leg to go septic. The, and the doctor telling me, by the way, the two directions were you may keep it or you may not. And the doctor telling you that when you start having these issues with your skin on your body and other things, they are nothing to play with or fun about them, right? So I'm trying to say it and imagine the idea in, in Egypt when everybody, everybody has these things on them. The, the, somebody's going to be cranky. Y'all know what I'm talking about? Somebody's going to be struggling. There's not going to be any joy in Mudville. Y'all, it's a story y'all learned back in the day. There's not going to be any joy there in Egypt. It's going to be a sad, terrible place, situation. 
I'm saying this to you to understand the intensity of that statement. The, uh, and the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the bulls, for the bulls came upon the magicians, upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord has spoken to Moses. That statement there is important. Because you look at this, there's 10 times in these two chapters where it says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Three of them, the Lord did it. And remember how the Lord does this. I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in a minute. But what he's saying here is this, that the Lord has exposed himself in such a way as to let Pharaoh know who he is. The power is being seen from water to blood to gnats to flies to frogs to every livestock dead. Everything has been seen. God is saying, I am the one that's all powerful. And finally, in this plague here, the sixth one, his magicians say, give up, dude. This, we can't do this anymore. What are you thinking, right? And when it says the Lord hardened his heart, it's saying this in such a way as to say the Lord is showing who he is and Pharaoh, Pharaoh is continually turning away from him. The Lord is hardening his heart by making himself known ultimately and Pharaoh's getting harder and harder instead of turning before it. Now you've got to want to be hard to put up with a whole mess of flies, right? And some gnats, you got to want to to see the power of the water turn to blood. you got to want to be hard for all those things. And so Pharaoh's heart was dead set against God. And when God displayed who he was, Pharaoh just kept going directly away from him. Now, I think that's important. Why is that important? Because that matters for you. It matters for you and maybe even some of your children. Maybe even some of your family members. You see it in the New Testament, don't you? Jesus demonstrates his power by some sign or miracle. And you think, man, if I was there that day, I'd be like, what you want me to do, Lord? I'm here. Instead, people turn away from him. And they continue to go. And what you see in the scriptures is that God demonstrating his power doesn't always mean people come and worship. It means in their own sinfulness, in their own wickedness, they continue to say, I don't believe it. I won't follow it. And I don't know what the explanation is other than sheer pride and sin on his part. Now, I'll come back to the hardening the heart in a minute. But you get to the end of the sixth one, and you're like, my goodness, man, just quit, <laughs> you know? Just stop. But he can't. Because he still believes that he is the stronger, the greater, the bigger, and he'll overcome. Round three happens. Round three, by the way, is the last three of these. So they, it's the longest section. I mean, you can look in chapter nine. It starts in verse 13. And you see it goes all the way over through chapter uh, 10. And so in this being the longest one, it's like the intensities ramping up. It's getting greater. It's getting bigger here. And so you got six down and you're going three more and each one of them become greater and bigger. In the seventh plague, you have hail coming. A lot happens here and I'll try to get through these next three. The Lord said, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues upon on you yourself and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. The Lord is not interested in putting himself on display just for Pharaoh. He's wanting the world to see now who he is. The world was in this from the beginning, right? From the very beginning to Abraham, he said, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. He says the nations will be drawn to you, right? We see the nations coming to Joseph because Joseph, in the position and power he was in, in Egypt, they all came to him and he was blessing them by giving them food that the Lord had provided as they came. We see these things coming and now the Lord is making his statement, I'm going to let the world know who I am, Pharaoh. 
You're going to know, and the world's going to know. God is going to put his power on display for all the world to see. By the way, that becomes the framework of all of it. What happens whenever uh, David comes up and he's fighting Goliath? Just for example, you know, remember Goliath starts talking junk, you little ruddy teenager. <laughs> and David's the little ruddy teenager. Looks at him and says, hey, yeah, I'm little and ruddy. I'm going to cut your head off, dude. You know, that's one of the great parts of the whole story. I'm going to chop your head off and I'm going to raise it up. And why am I going to raise it up? So that the world may know my God reigns. That's what he says. And so he's demonstrating this, not just uh, the idea that Jesus comes. Uh, in Isaiah, it says that Jesus was a light and that light was too great just to be for the Jews. He would shine to the Gentiles as well, right? God is not interested in just making himself known in some localized little place. He's going to make himself known to the world, and the world will see it. And so here the Lord says this, Pharaoh, I'm about to come down on you more than you could ever know. Your household is going to be bombarded, and I'm going to show you there is none like me. Not only is he making himself known, he's making himself known in such a way for Pharaoh to know there's no one that can compare to him. There's no other one like me. And so he says, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. You would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Y'all hear that? Here's why I'm doing this, to show my power so that my name shall be proclaimed in all the earth. In all the earth. By the way, that's exactly what what's said about when Jesus was raised from the grave. Crucified on the cross, raised up on the third day, so that forgiveness and repentance of sins should be proclaimed to all the earth. God's power was on display through the cross of Jesus Christ and the resurrection on the third day so that the world may know that he is God. This is just a glimpse of that kind of power here. You're still exalting yourself against my people and you will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I'll cause a very heavy hail to fall such as never been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock, all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field is brought, brought home will die in the hails uh, as the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves, his livestock into the houses but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the fields. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that there may be hail in the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant in the field, the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his hand toward the heavens. The Lord sent thunder and hail and fire and rain down on the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail, there was fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since the, it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And all the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Here, it wants to make something, a couple things clear. One, God is in control of this weather, Right? He's in control of it, and this is not some ordinary storm. Surely they may have had a hell storm before in Egypt, but notice how they continually repeat it over and over again. This was like nothing else. This was like never before. This was like nothing they had seen. This is something incredible. In fact, it was so great, Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said, This time I have sinned. In verse 27, the Lord is in the right and I and my people are in the wrong. Could it be, could it be possible that finally Pharaoh's saying, I'm sorry? Could it be? I don't think so. A couple of reasons why I don't think so. One is because you have some differences here. We talk about the doctrine of repentance, turning away from something and turning toward God. But there is what I call a false repentance or a counterfeit repentance. And I refer to it as penance. We may have heard that word before. Repentance is God-centered. Penance is man-centered, right? Penance is going to focus on 
what the consequences are and needing relief from those things. Penance is going to focus on an individual sin, whereas repentance goes far beyond just individual sins. You may, if you're a child of God, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have repented of your sins. It's necessary for salvation. You've turned from them. And and it may have been some particular sin that you committed that the Lord used that in such a way so as to show you that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, right? It may have been some presenting call sin that does this. But when you repented, if you truly repent, you're not just repenting from your sins. You're repenting as a sinner. Does that make sense to everybody? It's your sin. I'm saying that singularly on purpose. It's your sin that you must repent of, not just your sins. Your sins are the consequence of the fact that you are a sinner and you have sin, right? And so ultimately what's happening here and what Pharaoh does is finally he says, now this time I have sinned. Well, what about all the other times, Pharaoh? What about before? What's happened before this? What happened at this point? In other words, you have to be able to read these things in such a way as to determine what's true and what's not true sometimes. And what Pharaoh's saying is, this time I'm wrong. And again, any of y'all ever had, y'all's children, grandchildren for sure, they're all perfect and you don't have to deal with this kind of stuff. But, but for some of us, we do. My kids are perfect. I don't know if they're listening. They're not here, I don't think so. No, they're not. And, and, And so we have to deal with how we figure these things out, right? You have to start saying, are you really sorry for what you did? Are you sorry for the fact that you got caught, right? Y'all ever heard that? Talked about that? Pharaoh at this point is finally relenting and showing some penance because he's sorry for this time is too much. This time I've done it. I've sinned. He even knows some of the language to speak. This time I've done it. The Lord's right. Let's get this over with. And Pharaoh's trying to get himself out of a hole and do this. This penance of Pharaoh. He is not upset about his sin. The fact that he is by nature a sinner and needs to turn from that. He's upset for the fact that his sins have now forced this great consequence on him. And there's a strong, strong difference. Pharaoh says, this time I've sinned. The Lord is in the right. Plead with the Lord again. It worked before. Plead with him again for there's been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go. You shall stay no longer. Y'all hear this? Here's a guy who's promising the moon just to get this thing to stop. I'll do it. I'll do whatever you want me to do. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. And there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. Moses already picked it up. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. Y'all know what that means? They didn't have any crops. They didn't have any food coming. He's in a desperate situation now. It has flipped where the Lord had provided them in the midst of the great famine. Now he's taken it all away in just a moment in some sense. 400 years later, he's demonstrating, I've got power over whether you have a lot or you have nothing. And so Pharaoh knows this. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, stretched out his hands from the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But, this is a bad but right here in verse 34, When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Pharaoh here demonstrating this false repentance idea. Not letting the people go, sinning against him. The eighth plague comes, locusts. Lord says, go into Pharaoh, send the locusts here uh, again in verse 2, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses went into Pharaoh. You see how the locusts came, eat what is left after the hail. They ate it all up. There's nothing left. Pharaoh's servant said to him, verse 7, how long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go. 
that they may serve the Lord their God. All of Pharaoh's people know it. It's time. We're tired. This is too much. Please let them go. Pharaoh has every opportunity again. So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God. But which ones do you go? Moses said, we will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, the Lord be with you. If ever I let you and your little ones go, look, you have some evil purpose in mind. Nope, go. The men among you and serve the Lord for that is what you're asking and they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence in other words don't take the families don't take anybody else just the men the men would have to come back for their families Pharaoh says you can't go Lord said to Moses stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt eat every plant in the land all that hail is left So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that the day, all that the night had brought. When it was morning and the east wind had brought the locusts, the locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt such as a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before seen, never been before, nor evil will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so the land was darkened. They ate all the plants in the land and the fruit of the trees and the hail had had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind which lifted the locusts, drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people go. Again, same rhythm that came before. The Lord shows his power by bringing the winds, and with the winds he can bring the locusts. He can make it blow from the east, he can make it blow from the west. And with it he can bring what he he wants and what he will do. The Lord's power is on display. Pharaoh's hard heart is on display. You go into the last one there and darkness comes. This is the, 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 the penultimate, if you will, the one before the major one. But in some sense, this is the one that comes at the end of, the, the, of, of, this, of these series that are demonstrating the power over the gods of Egypt. It starts with the Nile where their life was given and it ends with the sun, what they worshiped and what they bowed down to. The sun was the greatest, the sun god Ra was the greatest of God's. He controlled the sun. He brought the sun up in the morning and he set the sun in the evening. He did all that the sun was. He was the God over it all. In fact, he was so powerful. That's the one that Pharaoh identified himself with. He was Ra when he became godlike. And so God is finally to demonstrate his power over all of these things. God says, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in the land of Egypt three days. In other words, he's the one that makes it go up and down. Let's do this for three days. I'm gonna stop the sunrise and the sunset, right? It's no longer going to exist. You're not even gonna be able to tell day from night. You don't even know what day it is now because there is no day and night. And for three days, Three days, it says, there was pitch darkness. They did not see one another, one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Now, isn't that crazy? He darkened the sun over Pharaoh and Egypt, but over his people, there was light. There was light. The imagery of that should point us directly to the New Testament, right? That over the land is darkness, but in one place, one place there is light, and that light has come. And in this imagery here, in, 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 in this passage, we see it goes all the way back. As the old preacher used to say, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. Once you believe that, the rest is easy, right? If that's true, then everything else is easy. And that God spoke and there was light. He created it. He made it. The thing we probably take most for granted, just, just, just above breathing, 
God made that, spoke it into existence, brought it from nothing, and God with a single word can make it cease. Do y'all hear what I'm saying? And that's what he's, that's what he's doing here. And what God is doing is he says in this imagery also as it comes, and, and you remember in John chapter 3, when we, we all know John three sixteen, but y'all remember what follows. The light has come, but people love the darkness rather than the light. Jesus is this light. And in this picture, God over his people has brought light over all of those who will not follow him, who reject him. There is nothing but darkness. They can't even see each other. I remember when I was seven years old, I was in West Virginia. We were doing with our church, we were doing a, a, a backyard Bible club with families from our church in Petersburg, West Virginia. Best Dairy Queen ever been to in my life. The only thing they had in the whole town. But there was a place called Smoke Hole Caverns. Y'all ever heard of Smoke Hole Caverns in West Virginia? Smoke Hole Caverns. And you go into Smoke Hole Caverns, first cave I'd ever been in, and they talked about that point of darkness, right? And so you walk in, and there's this point in the cave. All caves are like this. There's this point in the cave where the outside light doesn't come in anymore, where it becomes pitch black dark. And you get to that point, and they got the little lights up on the walls and the cave, you know. And she hits that switch. And I'm going to tell you right now, as a seven-year-old, I was terrified. Because you can't see your hand in front of your face. And that experience is not only terrifying, because you don't know what's happening, what's coming, what's where, but it's disorienting. You don't know where you are. You don't know what you're doing. And for, for a solid minute, she left it like that. And you know what I said? Turn the lights back on. <laughs> I spoke up at seven. I had a lot of confidence back then too. Point being, that's disorienting. And for three days, it's out there. That's what darkness is. Darkness is a thing where you don't see others. You only focus on yourself. Darkness is a thing when you don't know which direction is true and right, so you just follow along into nothingness and keep on going. But the light, the light shows us that it's not just about us, as Pharaoh thought it was. Remember what he said? Your pride, Pharaoh, is taking you down. It's not just about us. There's one greater than us that made that light, and that's the one that we look to. And the light gives us the direction by which we walk and by which we go. And just as that, that light imagery is shown throughout all of the scriptures, the Egyptians thought that they were the keepers of the sun, the light, and God says, I am the light. I am the light. In this, I just want to point out three things that we got to go. These plagues are a testimony of God to God. He's making himself known. They're a testimony to God's power. As we've talked about all throughout, all of nature, everything is at his beck and call. Whatever he says, it will do. Jesus does the same thing, right, in the sea when it's raging. He says, peace, be still, and it goes to glass. We've seen this throughout. That's a demonstration of God's power is that he's in control of nature because he spoke nature into existence and he can tell it what to do and when to do. But we also see in this a testimony to God's graciousness. You may say, Josh, what are you talking about? He just turned the water to blood, gnats, flies in their mouth, boils all over their body. He just did all of this stuff. He did all these things. But remember Remember what Moses said, what God said to Moses, I could have struck Pharaoh down right away. And every one of these things was an opportunity for Pharaoh to do what? The right thing. He said, I could have struck him down. We could have done this a whole different way. I could have struck Pharaoh down because of his sins and we could have walked right out of this place. But he was giving in this because this is also a testimony of God's patience. Patience. He's not a dictator or a tyrant as to see before. He's giving opportunities here for you to change. You say, Josh, that seems weird. I mean, you, I don't see the plagues that way. But I believe that's exactly what the scripture is teaching us. 
God is gracious not to give what you deserve, but sometimes he's going to discipline. He's, sometimes he's going to bring something to try to get you to do what is right. Don't overlook those things. That's the danger. That's the danger. And not only that, God is patient with us. God is patient with us. He didn't just do one and say, all right, there was your chance. He did nine. And he's going to come up with another one. But notice what he does even in that last one. Notice what he does even there. In that plague there about the hail. Wasn't the last one, but the one about the hail. What does he say? Tell the Egyptians to go and take cover. Even in the midst of his judgment, he says, I'm going to warn you so that let you know that there is a place that you can find refuge. That's going to be on full display in the 10th one. Because the death angel's coming. But he gives the people a way out. And you know that way out was not just for the Israelites. For anybody who did what he said he would, they would do. I'm thankful for who God is and how he makes himself known as one who is gracious, as one who is all-powerful, but, but at the same time one who is patient with us. And so I pray that he continues to be patient, just as he always says, and that we as his people would run to the light in Goshen, right, rather than the darkness of Egypt. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. By your grace and for your glory, Father, may we live, may we live as lights for you. All of this we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Next week, one of my favorite passages, the Passover. We'll talk about that next week, right? Y'all gonna be here? Good, we'll see you. See you Sunday too, Sunday morning, Sunday night.